0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please open it up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 will have the passages up on the screen. We're in our series called Deep Dive, where uh, we asked you a few weeks ago some questions that are pressing for your faith. The questions have fallen into a few categories. Theological questions, personal questions uh, uh, to God, and then objections to the faith. And today, we talk about one of the main troubles that people have... With Christianity, and the question is posed like this How can there be just one true religion? How can Christians claim that you're the only religion and other people are incorrect? After all, as the objection might go, there are well meaning, smart, loving people in every religion. So, what gives with the exclusivity? The closed-mindedness, and wouldn't this kind of belief contribute to bigotry or closed-mindedness and oppression of other people? Well, we'll see all kinds of great stuff in our passage. While you turn there, I will say, it's my hope in our discussion that, one, you get this question answered as best as I can answer it. A non-authority, non-special person, uh, but still with God's word and and some evident truths from that, uh, I think we can find some great answers. But there's all kinds of great people online, and so if you'd like to talk after, I can give you some resources from the people that I've pulled from for this week's discussion. Secondly, my hope is if you're a Christian and maybe you think, I don't ask that question, that's not an important question to me, it would equip you, this morning's discussion would equip you to be able to answer that question for someone else. Thirdly... It's important that anytime we have a theological discussion that we remember that all theology should result in doxology. That's a fancy way to say all theological discussions should not just be an effort to learn a few things so we can put our stamp of approval on it and say, my beliefs are right. But all theology, when it is biblical theology, when it's Christian theology, should result in worship and love of God. These should not just be abstract arguments or abstract conversations so that we know that we've got our our ducks in a row, but instead, all theology should be a study of who God is and result in worship, or what he's done for us and result in worship, or what he's called us to and result in worshipful action. So, 1 John 4, starting in verse 1. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Do you remember what you were doing on September 11th, 2001? I feel like um, the JFK assassination was a historical event for people my parents' age that they remember exactly what they did and exactly what what they heard and what they saw on the day that JFK got assassinated. And in the same way for my generation or people who are old enough to remember 9-11, I think we tend to remember where we were, you know, on the West Coast, what you woke up to in the morning, to a a history-changing event. The things that you saw as the news coverage unfolded throughout the day of people dying and something that was heinous and kind of unheard of in our culture for the time to know that we were attacked. In fact, I think some people, when the first plane flew into the World Trade Center, thought it was an accident, and so there were lots of questions, lots of speculation, frantic speculation about what is going on and what might be true of this situation, and then as other planes crashed and as other people died and as the, as the buildings collapsed, it became a paradigm-shifting moment in the socio-religious perspective in our time. It was, a, it was a dividing line in people's perspective on religion because this is the historic moment in the last 20 years where people said that the problem with society is extreme religious belief. That one of the most divisive, violence causing, marginalizing injustices that can be created in the world will be created through extreme religious beliefs. Specifically, as it has flowed into our society and into a lot of people's belief structures, that the problem with the world is thinking that your religion is true and that other people are therefore bad. And that it creates religion, a slippery slope effect that will say, we're right. And other people are wrong. If they're wrong, they're going to hell, for instance. And if they're going to hell, we might as well treat them as though they're in hell now and marginalize people. And so people more than ever object to Christianity by saying religion is one of the main problems in society these days. Embedded in the objection, how can you think that Christianity is the one true religion, is a lot of cultural assumptions shaped on the the experiences that we've had. And I want to start by just agreeing with that observation that religion can be completely divisive. It can be problematic. It can cause people to hate and to kill and to marginalize and create injustice in the world. Religion creates that slippery slope, and I think the Bible is honest about that reality. And so our culture... People started writing books about religion in the aftermath of 9 11, but now that it's been a few years, people are starting to write books and write articles and make observations about how it's just affected people in those years. And for the most part, there are two solutions to the divisiveness of religion that have been created in our culture today. And uh, the first one is that we should get over religion. The first, way of dealing with the divisiveness and the destructiveness of religion in the world is people have come to the conclusion that we should get over religion. The only problem is, it hasn't happened. Um, in the last 50 years, in the last 100, 100 years, Africa has gone from 9% to 50% Christian. Korea has gone from 1% to 50% Christian, and China is set to do the same thing or something similar in the next few decades. South America has a growing, burgeoning evangelical population of a sort, and so the unique thing is Christianity is still outpacing population growth. The conversion rate for Christianity is outpacing population growth, and so as a response then, some governments and some uh, cultures, have tried to stamp out religion, creating a different type of injustice altogether. So, in China, for instance, in the 1940s, communist China tried to regulate the growth of Christianity. What they did is they kicked out all the Western missionaries, but in so doing, it made Christianity not a Western thing that was brought in from some other culture, but it made Christianity indigenous in China, and then it started growing Even faster as these uniquely called, uniquely contextualized gospel preachers and gospel ministers go out and make disciples in China. So Christianity has not shrank. 1 John 4 verses 1 through 3 tells us something. It assumes a certain type of truth in our passage is this. When, When we read it, it says, Don't believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they're from God and how you know whether they're from God because there are false prophets who have come into the world. The assumption that John has about teaching, about religious teaching, is that there is a spiritual realm behind these teachings, that the teachings and the spirits that are responsible for the teachings are linked. So John assumes that religious opinions have a spiritual reality behind them. Well, the reason this is important is because he's basically making a very keen observation about the way people work. And it's this. It's possible to fall into a teaching, and in John's opinion, fall into a spirit that does create evil, that enslaves you, that creates injustice, and would cause you to live a life that is not, in John's opinion, in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's entirely possible to fall into an ideology where you sign on for a belief and you sign on for uh, a religion even that does not free you because the spirit behind it is one that is of the world. Another observation that he's making here is that people of every type look for spiritual reality. So if John were here and assumed in the passage, it's just the idea that everyone is longing for some sort of spiritual reality in the world. And so John's opinion is, if you ever say, I'm not really a religious person, I'm not really a spiritual person, I'm more of a pragmatic person or a practical person, or or I'm, I'm not really a religious person, I don't really take faith leaps in my life, I really just live my life based on what's observable in the world, John might say, hold on a second, because behind that teaching is a spirit. Behind that assumption is its own set of beliefs about the spiritual world, and so John might challenge you to say, if you're the kind of person who says, I'm not really that religious, he might say, well, think again, because everyone makes some assumptions about the existence or non-existence of God that have a spirit, have an opinion. You're making a claim about God that he would say has a spirit. The second observation in our culture about how to do away with the divisiveness and the destructiveness of religion is confine it to the spiritual realm. I was taking an Uber the other day in, uh, in Chicago for a denomination thing for the Evangelical Free Church. And my Uber driver was a Catholic, kind of more of a liberal Catholic um, uh, professor that had just retired. And by liberal, I don't mean political. I mean like of the theological tradition, tradition that is liberal Christianity. And when I asked him, hey, what do you do? Do you drive Uber a lot? Do you enjoy it? And that sort of thing, which is kind of my normal set of questions like, what, why are you driving Uber? And you know, what of what this is of interest to you? He said, I just retired because I was unhappy with the Catholic university that I worked at. And I said, oh, so interesting. So you're Catholic. He said, well, yeah. I mean, mostly what I did was just coach students to try and live justly and live kindly in the world and love other people. And I said, oh, so interesting. So did you like disciple them? Did you like teach them scripture? And he said, well, mostly I just tried to mentor them so that they would make good choices. And I don't like millennials anymore, so I retired. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> here's, what I th- here's what I know. Here's what I know. The, the Uber driver guy, by his own claim, was Christian of a Catholic variety. And I, th- I know what he was doing. He was downplaying some of his Christianity to appeal with what he saw was as a millennial who was probably a secularist, probably somebody who doesn't believe in God, and he doesn't want to get into a whole God discussion because he sees me as a millennial, um, though I'm a little old for, for being a millennial, um, and I hadn't slept very well, so I think I probably look a little bit older than even I am. And, uh, and so I know what he was doing. He was downplaying his faith in an effort to try and connect with me by saying mostly what I did was try and mentor young people to just live justly and love other people. And immediately, like a shot, God brought into my heart conviction all of the times that I had done that very th- same thing about being a pastor. At the dog park, my dog's playing with your dog, uh, my dog looks real cute, and your dog is looking cute too, and they play together, and inevitably somebody asks, well, do you bring your dog here a lot, yada, yada, what do you do? And I'll say, well, I run like a nonprofit. it's a Christian nonprofit. it does a lot of good in our city, and I'm a teacher, or something like that. And I can say, oh, all the times where I've downplayed the fact that I'm a pastor, I love discipling people, I love teaching God's word, and I'm not ashamed of it, but I was ashamed of it, or something, or I was insecure about myself, or I didn't love the person enough to want to have a whole religious discussion, So I just put it, I put my light under a basket. And so I realize all of the effort that I have made to try and maintain relevance with a lot of different people um, at the dog park or in other places where I know if I bring up God, I'm going to have that awkward silence. People go, okay, interesting, you're a pastor. And then just don't really know how to proceed with the conversation. All the times I've done that, I'm doing the exact same thing that my Uber driver was doing, but it's not... Earning credibility with anyone. And John is, and I guess what I'm saying is my Uber driver and in my sin nature, I tend to fall into the same solution that our society has created for religious divisiveness and that is to confine religion to the private realm. And I've sat across the coffee table with people who uh, do not believe in God, and they have said this very thing to me, people I love and care for, friends, family members, where they say, I'm okay with you being a Christian, but I'm not okay with you bringing it into the public realm. I'm not okay with you trying to convince people or helping people train their kids to be Christians. Why don't you just keep your religious views private, or we can agree on a few terms. Secondly, or one, we can agree to this. All religions have to be then equally valid paths to God. In order for us to keep peace and equality and justice in the world, we have to agree that all religions are equally valid paths to God. Or secondly, don't bring your religion into the public discourse. Meaning, don't advocate for your religious views in the public world where there are other religions or other belief systems that exist. In First John 4, Verses 4 and 5, we see another assumption that's in John's preaching that answers our our objection here. Verse 4 says, You, dear dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Well, the them in this passage are the critics of Christianity. Here, John assumes that they come from a religious viewpoint. So again, John's opinion is that you either come from God or you come from the world, but you come from somewhere. John's opinion is that everyone has faith assumptions that they bring into the public sphere. And so it wouldn't be intellectually honest for us to say uh, people who don't believe in God can bring their opinions about marriage, about the value of human life about gender, sexuality, about money into the public sphere. But therefore, it's wrong for someone else who has a religious perspective to bring it into the public sphere because John is saying something that is true. Everyone makes faith assumptions. Everyone takes a leap of faith. So for instance, if you are saying, I don't really believe in God. I'm not sure where I stand with God, but I'm still a moral person. My question would be, why? And on what grounds? And again, there are much smarter people who have argued these philosophical points. But simply put, I'm, and I'm happy about this, everyone I meet thinks racism is wrong, like pretty much. Now we might have sinful tendencies, but everyone we say is racism wrong. They check, yes, it's wrong, and everyone thinks that murder is unjust, and everything thinks that genocide is something that shouldn't happen in society. On what grounds? And if you're saying, I don't necessarily have a moral authority or a God that has decreed certain things to be this moral authority, then my simple question is, I'm happy you believe that. Absolutely, I'm so happy we live in a society where a lot of people agree on these things. But isn't it true that you're making a blind faith assumption to jump from, I don't really believe in God, to certain things are not just helpful or not helpful, but are wrong and right? So John's opinion here. Behind every teaching is a spiritual reality, and behind every single viewpoint is a leap of faith. The question is, is it a credible leap of faith? And so, in a video that you can see on YouTube, Timothy Keller, from whom I've I've, uh, borrowed, I guess you could say, most of the content from this discussion from his book, The Reason for God, uh, he speaks at the headquarters of Google. And they asked Timothy Keller, preacher, pastor, a Christian apologetics guy, to speak about the validity of Christianity at Google headquarters. And so he says, as a conclusion to his speech, before they field questions from the audience, he says, it takes too much faith for me to not believe in Jesus. Because everyone has a faith assumption. Everyone is making some leap of faith. The question is, is it one that's credible? Is it one that's logical? Is it true? And so many people... Many people would say something like this, I'll believe in Christianity if you can prove it to me. But what they don't do is step back for a bit and say, are my current beliefs about right, wrong, and about the world Are they actually logically credible? People assume their current beliefs are completely valid, and if you can overcome my perfect current beliefs with something that's even stronger, Christianity, then maybe I'll become a Christian. But what most people don't do is understand and and even get honest with themselves about how completely illogical a lot of our beliefs are, or how many of the most important things in life are believed by blind faith. And that's the angle from which a person like Timothy Keller or anyone else can talk to someone who is an educated, sharp, honest, intellectual type person like all the people who work at Google and say, it just takes too much blind faith for me not to believe in Jesus Christ. Again, another sermon for another day and a bit of a tangent, but we can continue to talk about it, for instance, after the service if you're interested in talking. So, the biggest faith, that was a long intro, the biggest faith assumption that people have about Christianity in our culture today is this, and I'm pointing out the fact that it is a faith assumption, is this, no one should say there is just one true religion, and if you ask a follow-up question, why not, you'll observe that this is an argument and not a belief. It's just a blind faith jump that people say, I think and feel that it would cause a problem if one religion said they have all the truth. And usually they'll pull out an example, and I'll show you an illustration here on the screen. They'll pull out the three blind men and the elephant argument. And the blind men uh, walk up, all three of them, to an elephant. And all three of them walk up to a different part of the elephant, as the argument goes. And one grabs the trunk and says, elephants are long and flexible. And uh, the second blind man walks up to the elephant and grabs it by the leg and says, elephants are thick, sturdy, and kind of stubby. And then the third blind man walks up to the elephant's ear and says, you guys are all wrong. Elephants are flat and wide and kind of floppy. And as the argument goes, that's how religion is with God. We all have some of the truth But none of us have all of the truth, and therefore there should be a humility about our religious beliefs because none of us should claim that we have all the truth about God. One holds the trunk, one holds the ear, one holds the leg, and they start to argue and realize that all of them is right, and all of them, and each of them is wrong. They all grasp their personal, private experience with the elephant, but don't see the whole picture. Therefore, none of them should say that they truly know the elephant or that we should truly know God. So Leslie Newbegin is a British man who was a missionary in India. And in his ministry in India, he came across this argument quite a bit. And he wrote a book when he got back home from his missionary journey called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. So in India he saw people who made this argument over and over again in a predominantly pluralist, which means lots of different gods, or polytheistic um, uh, culture. To his surprise, when he got back to Europe, from his missionary assignment, people in Britain were making the same argument. And so finally, when he saw his missionary journey where he became kind of skilled at conversing with people about the gospel in India, but then got home and saw that people under a different belief structure, not just polytheism, but under uh, belief that truth itself is relative in Europe, it kind of finally came to him, his response and his answer to this main objection. He says this, "'The only way that you can know that there are three blind men and an elephant is to see the entire reality.'" There is another character in the story, another, one, uh, another way to say it is that there's another person in the story that is the storyteller who claims that they see all reality. Therefore, when you say there are three blind men and an elephant, or when you say Not, no, no one of the religions in the world see all of the truth, but all of them are right and all of them are wrong, you are claiming the very type of authority and truth that you say no one can have. In his words, he says, there is an appearance of humility at the belief that truth is much greater than anyone can grasp. But if it is used to invalidate every claim to discern truth, then it is, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. And we have to ask, uh, Nubian writes, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize every absolute claim that different religions make? Okay, that was really dense. Here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what Leslie Nubian's trying to say. When you say no one religion can claim that they have all the truth, you are yourself putting yourself, though it might sound humble, you're putting yourself in the place of God to say there is one person in the universe who understands the ultimate reality, and it's me. And I have the perspective, personally, in 2019, I finally figured it out, that none of the religions are right, and none of the religions are wrong, but they're all equally valid paths to God. And then Leslie Newbigin would say, from what place do you have such an authority? It's imperialistic, it's individualistic, and it's not the same peace-loving thing that you think everyone's going to have. And we, now we know this, because again, from, 2000, from 9-11, and, and that belief being popular even before that, and then 9-11 kind of just shot these beliefs right into the heart of people. It was an example on TV for years. To today, now we're at a place where the shoe has finally dropped, and the folks in our culture who have said, no one religion should make these claims, have now become the new oppressors, or have, new, have now taken part in some small way to pushing around other people. And that's why we have such a divisive cultural battle going on in America today, that you might observe it. It's not just politics. It's religion, it's politics, it's economics, and it's all washing together into this crazy divisive, like hot climate for people, where you're you're noticing the red states, the moralists, the conservatives are looking down at other people saying, you're ruining gender, you're ruining marriage, you're ruining religion, and you're eliminating our rights. And then the blue states are looking down at the red states and saying, you're closed-minded, you're keeping us back from progress. And now, there's self-righteousness on both sides, Self righteousness in a progressive, kind of like forward thinking way, self righteousness in a stuck in the mud kind of religious, uh, cultural way. And now we've just got two groups of self righteous people who are prone to that kind of thing fighting each other. I hope I'm not saying anything that's like overly scarring for anyone. I hope we can agree if you turn on the TV, you see there is more divisiveness in our culture than kind of ever before. By God's grace, there is a solution. When I said that all theology should be doxology, I'm hoping that this is kind of like the two-thirds halftime break where we can now just talk about what are the things about Christianity that create peace, inclusion, and love. What we'll find is that the things that really create life change and joy in the world are in fact the unique things about Christianity. Christianity. So if, for instance, you're ever tempted to say, why do we have to talk about theology and all the things that's unique about Christianity? Why don't we just talk about what we have in common? Why don't we just talk about love? Well, you're robbing yourself of the source of love in Christianity because the things that really cause peace and inclusion and love of other people are the unique things about faith in Christ. So as a summation, halftime break, as a summation, if you say religions cause a problem in the world, John agrees with you, if you say religion, uh, religious people take things on faith, John would say we all make faith assumptions in our life. If you say religion should be kept private, well, you're making a religious claim that you th- say should be kept private, but you're not making it private because you're saying it out loud. Gotcha. If you say, no one has an authority to make spiritual claims, you are making a claim about spiritual authority that you say no one should have. And if you say, no one should convert anyone else to their religion, you, in fact, are trying to convert people to your religious opinion doing the very thing that you claim that no one should have. Here's my point. We are all exclusive. Everyone's exclusive. Everyone thinks that if everyone agreed with them, the world would be a better place. And if you don't, you're you're deluding yourself about how opinionated you are. We're all exclusive. The question is, what kinds of exclusive beliefs will cause grace, inclusion, and love? My in-laws are missionaries in the Congo. They just flew back to America, and um, them flying back to America and getting to see my wife's parents reminded me of a really interesting conversation I had with my mother-in-law. She, uh, in the Congo, you know, just the very dead center of Africa, The Heart of Darkness was a book written about the area in which they live. Um, She runs a women's shelter, And it started out as a shelter, and now it's kind of a school. They rescue women from prostitution. And in the city that they live, about 13 million people, there's about 7 million people in one neighborhood that live on about $100 a year. So lots of, like, just rampant poverty. And in that, women are oftentimes mistreated, obviously marginalized. Those are understatements for the fact that there are just a a huge number of women in prostitution. And so she, in conjunction with some other women in in the denomination, built a center where they can rescue women from prostitution, they can give them job skills, they can take care of their kids if they have them in the process... And uh, the, the, the program basically trains them to start their own business, learn how to manage and protect the money that they earn. And they graduate from the program learning how to sew and how to make things uh, with fabric. And they give them a sewing machine at the end of it that works and is new, and they can start their business and continue to live off of the things that they've learned from the school. So they built the, they built the compound. They got the property, and they built a building. And they put an extra wing to start a school for some of the little kids. And then all of a sudden, someone came to them from the government with some forged paperwork uh, from the military and said, this is my house. Look at my paperwork. And uh, Mama Jill, as they call it, my mother-in-law, she was like, no, you didn't. You messed with the wrong Christian. <laughs> and uh, they said, no, get out of here. So they, 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 they uh, bugged him until they left. And then more military men came back and said, we have paperwork the paperwork was forged, of course. This is our place, and you guys have such and such a time to get out. And so Mama Jill started building a wall around the... Um, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not, I'm not trying to get in any kind of situations here, but the solution for her was a wall. And so they built a wall around the compound. And they dug the footings for it. The military men came back, and they started hurting. They beat the men that, um, that were building the wall. Even though they were just hired laborers, they beat the men, and then they went, came back and talked to Mama Jill. And, and Mama Jill prayed like crazy. She came back to America. She had to raise some funds to, to build the wall as quickly as she could. Um, but she realized while she was back here that the violence kept persisting because these corrupt politicians and their military partners uh, were not giving up. And so I was outraged. I was like, let's do something. Let's go. Let's go back to the Congo. We can make this happen. And I, in my lack of experience in doing ministry in that area, said, Jill, why don't I just devote the next year of my life to raising as much money as possible for your ministry? It's obviously worthwhile. It's saving people on a daily basis. We can do this. I I can get you as much money as I can just possibly raise. I'll go fly around. We'll talk to all the churches about what's going on here. This is a travesty. This is an injustice. Let's do something. And she, whether it was just because of her great experience, wisdom, or God, said, you know, now that we're getting updates on the situation... I'm realizing that God needs to change the heart of the politicians that are involved in this. The solution is much more systemic. It's much bigger than raising money, and in fact, if I came back to the Congo with a duffel bag full of cash, I would only be a target, and we would probably be killed. So, her solution, if you want to make a difference with these women in prostitution and their children, we need to send long-term missionaries to make disciples and pray for revival in the city of Kinshasa. Because there needs to be heart conversion so that the people who are in power and are controlling the systems and the structures of the city decide to give up their corruption, their love for power, their their unjust practices, and be converted at the heart. And pray that a revival sweeps over the city so that what becomes normal is glorifying God by living justly. And obviously, that's not a short-term thing by God's grace um, My mother-in-law made the context with the right people in the government, was invited to some dinner parties that talked to the right person, and God orchestrated this amazing thing. One day, maybe she'll tell you about it, that uh, they built the wall and their um, compound is secure where they have the proper paperwork. So praise God for that. It's been really a, a neat story. But her point is still true, that there are beliefs, especially in her context, where there are spirits behind teachings that lead people to love power and love pleasure and create injustice. But there are other truths that if you take them into your heart can change you and can create inclusion and love in the world. Mama Jill, the people that she works with, and John are all telling you the same thing. There are realities that we believe about God that free us to love other people and create justice in the world and not injustice. And I'll sum them up in three points here. Three things that, if we take them into our heart, will create exactly what we're wanting in the world and in our lives. It is the origin of Christian salvation, the purpose of Christian salvation, and the method of Christian salvation. The origin of Christian salvation is that Jesus is God. Take a look in verse two. John writes, "This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God." Notice, Jesus says, "Jesus," er, I'm sorry, John says that Jesus came. In the flesh. And this is different than any other religious view of the world. And even different today and back then. So Jesus came to save us in a physical reality. And he came to redeem a physical reality. The, uh, he came insinuates that he did not just, he wasn't just created. He wasn't created. He wasn't born. He came. Meaning he was pre-existent. It's showing us that John early church, these people saw Jesus as God, which is something that Jesus himself claimed. The early church existed in a time where there were lots of other gods, that your job had a God, and your tribe had a God, and there's, it's a pluralist society. And then along came Christians with a weird phenomenon where rich and poor worshipped Jesus together, and different races were included in salvation. That didn't happen anywhere else in the Roman world. It was a very unique phenomenon about the early church. And if you were a skeptical scholar of history, you would notice, or or you might make the claim, well, God didn't have to do anything with it. It grew because it involved so many people. But the interesting thing about the early church is that because everyone was welcome to know Jesus as God, all kinds of different people, moralists, screw-ups, rich, poor, Jews, and Gentiles, came together to worship God. So there was something about Jesus as God that was the origin of that salvation, that the salvation came from pre-existence in the form of the person of Jesus Christ as God. And because of that, it wasn't just beliefs in a bunch of different gods. They saw the living God of creation in one person, the person of Jesus Christ, and it made them follow him in a relationship. And if you believe that every religion is an equally valid path to God, then you're giving up on having a real relationship with the one true God. Does that make sense to you? That the only way to have intimacy in any kind of relationship is if you actually love the person on the grounds that that person is uh, showing themselves to you. So if I talk to my wife and I say, Hannah, hold up. All women are equally valid paths to intimacy. I would have like a broken arm, two black eyes, and, f- and justly. You can't claim to have a real relationship with the living God if you're saying, listen, God, you don't understand, it's 2019. All religions make similar claims and therefore are equally valid paths to God. If Jesus is looking you in the eye and saying, stop, I want you to know me, And it's on that place where God was so graceful to send his son so that we can know the living God that he's looking at you and going, have salvation through me and lay aside everything else that is of importance to you, whatever it is, whatever identity you might put together, to know me. And then you might even think that Christians said, well, other religions have a prophet, but we have God, and that would fuel some self-righteousness. But instead, they watched the living God live in detail recording his words, and what did they see in this person? They saw him die for his enemies. They saw him love people who abandoned him in his time of need. God came, and what he did was love people with inclusion. That's the origin of salvation. The purpose of salvation is restoration. If you take a look in verse two, he came in the flesh, Jesus comes to redeem the spiritual world, but also to redeem the physical world. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is a calling to engage with the physical world today because Jesus is going to save the physical world in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns. So if all Christianity ever said was try and get as many converts as you can to gain political and cultural influence and that's all that matters, and the physical needs of your life don't really matter, then you might cause a problem. But when Jesus is saying, uh, the physical world matters, and I'm gonna redeem the physical world, now our ministry to the poor and to the hurting, it makes sense because Jesus' salvation is fleshly in the sense that Jesus came into the physical world. Eastern religions say that the physical world is a illusion, is an illusion. And Western religions, for the most part, say the physical world is bad and you can escape it by being religious and doing the right thing. But Christianity, salvation in Christ, says that the world will be redeemed by Jesus and we get to be a part of it every day that we live as Christians. And it's the same God, for instance, that said in Jeremiah 29, and saying the same thing to us in Orange County go into the city of Babylon in that sense, in that scenario, and seek its peace. The Jewish people in Jeremiah 29 wanted to create an enclave of religious people outside of the city. They wanted to be like in Corona, out like where all the homes. I'm I'm sorry, that was meant to be a joke about suburbs. So, you know, the, the Jewish people in Jeremiah 29 wanted to make their own nice little place where they could stay away from the problems of Babylon. And then God in Jeremiah 29 says, go live in the city and seek the shalom there. Get a job there. Contribute there. Have kids, raise them in a godly uh, way. He's calling us to do the same thing because Jesus' salvation is physical. And then lastly, the method of salvation is the most powerful, exclusive thing that creates peace and justice in our lives, and it's this. God saves us with his grace. And this, I mean, is where our salvation becomes doxology. The claim that we make as Christians is that God loved us. And the Bible does often say that God loves you and and loves everyone, and sometimes we get lost on it. Can I just tell you, God loves you, singular you. God knows you and loves you. He's given you his, his grace. If you don't know him, you don't know where you stand with God, there's an offer of salvation that you can know the living God and live with him to be a part of his ministry in the world, his mission in the world, you can be accepted and loved in Jesus Christ because he first loved you. If your religious perspective, and I know this is a challenge to some of you, so please hear this. If your view of Christianity is I acted good and I acted good enough to believe in Jesus, and so it causes you to look down on other people and say you need to make good choices like I did, like choosing to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Or if you say, Other people need to get their acts together and believe in Jesus and be righteous like I did. You are not reading 1 John 4.10. And it says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Don't you see what humility it takes to be an actual growing Christian to say, I didn't love God. People of other religions and and of no religion at all, they could completely be my moral superiors. They could be better than me in every objective way. And I don't need to, it's not as if as long as I act better than other people, then God's real. Because it's not that I love God. It's that he loved me and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty of my sin. There was an older guy in a church in Bakersfield when I lived there who, this was kind of his life verse. And by that I mean, this was a verse that he read right when he died. We were at Bible study and uh, my mentor was training the small group leaders of the small church on the southeast side of Bakersfield and uh, I was helping him prepare that content as well as I led worship there once back in the day. And my mentor Bill sat with all the small group leaders and they were talking about what it means to really point people to Christ. What it means to live as Christians who believe the gospel and not don't just fall into moralism. And then this old Pillar of the church, this guy who was just had been there for decades. He had been in that neighborhood ministering to people, ministering to little kids in his neighborhood, just just a hero of the faith with that church. He was the reason why we kind of came in and did some training because he wanted to help his small groups in in his church. And he just said, Hey, all this discussion about believing the gospel reminds me of 1 John 4:10. And he reads it: Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and then he bowed his head and everyone thought he was praying <laughs> but he just took a breath and went and went to be with the lord what a way to go i mean honestly what a way to go if you're going to say anything in your last words on earth in a i mean nobody at that church is ever going to forget that god loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice By God's grace, I hope to go out on 1 John 4.10 to say, you guys, I want to just tell you one thing that's on my heart. God loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. And because of that, what's at the center of our heart is not our moral performance or our social superiority, but a God who has reached out to us, paid the penalty for our sin, and now frees us to live a different kind of life. In the discussions after that, Every single person said, I get it. The guy who was a pillar of the church lived it out in a way that represented it in a perfect way. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. That he lived out first John 4.10 as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And when you take that into your heart, it becomes a source of love and humility, love for God and love for others because of this free gift of grace that God has offered for us. So my response, my encouragement to you, don't keep your light under a basket. Don't uh, have a response, but don't feel pressured to keep your faith private as though that's the only solution to peace and equality in the world because we have a gospel that is Christ as Lord restoring the world around us by his grace. And that, when we take it into our heart, is a real motivation for love and equality. Let's pray.